go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, another day. Thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to worship you, to learn from your word, and just pray that you would help us to understand uh, the significance of the ascension of Christ and all that that means to us. Pray that you would use it to grow our, our joy in you, our faith in you, uh, our ability to speak of your goodness and your greatness. Just pray that all that we do today uh, here at Crossway would glorify and honor you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, so far uh, in our study, we've looked at seven, seven significant events so far in the life of Christ. <clears throat> First, of course, was the, the incarnation, and then his baptism, temptation, the transfiguration, uh, his decision, passion, and then the resurrection. Now today, we're going to consider uh, the ascension, <clears throat> ascension of Christ, his return to heaven, and uh, uh, the ascension is really a, an extremely important aspect of redemptive history, but it tends to get overlooked, um, or at least it gets very little attention compared to um, some of the other aspects of Christ's earthly ministry. We always celebrate his birth um, or his incarnation with Christmas. Uh, we celebrate or remember his death and resurrection with Good Friday and Easter. We even look forward to his return, but most modern Christians don't celebrate the ascension. Some churches do. In fact, I just kind of want to take a poll. Does anybody know when Ascension Day is, aside from the fact that it's 40 days after Easter? Anybody know when Ascension Day is this year? Nobody? That's what I thought. I didn't either. I had to look it up. <clears throat> so Ascension Day is actually May the 13th uh, of this year, and it's usually celebrated on, in fact, I think it's always celebrated on a Thursday, so that shifts slightly depending on what day Easter falls on. <clears throat> anyway, we, we just don't give much thought to it. Uh, that was not always the case, okay? The creeds of the early church draw attention to the ascension. For example, in the Apostles' Creed, it states, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And then later on in the Heidelberg Catechism, that addresses it as well, as does the Westminster Catechism. <clears throat> in the Heidelberg Question 46 asks, what do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? The response is that Christ, while his disciples watched, was lifted up from the earth to heaven and will be there for our good until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So our forefathers <clears throat> in the faith apparently considered it significant uh, enough to address as one of the core elements of the faith. That's why it's in the creeds and the catechisms. And I know that nowadays we're certainly we're aware of the ascension, uh, but most of us really don't give much thought to it or certainly not to the significance of the event and what part it played in redemptive history. Um, and that actually is also addressed in Heidelberg Catechism. <clears throat> but first, uh, we're going to look at the biblical record and we find uh, that in Luke's writings and also in John 21. Um, first, in Luke's gospel, in uh, 
chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, and then again in Acts, verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to read that uh, this morning as we get started here. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts, first chapter. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven, into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right. Now, just the fact that Luke addresses the ascension, the same event, both in his gospel and in Acts, should give some indication as to the fact that this is a pretty important event. So, the ascension takes place 40 days, or about six weeks, after his resurrection. And if you think back to the last lesson we did, um, Jesus told Mary, who was trying to hang on to him there at uh, the tomb, the empty tomb, he said, don't hold on to me because I have not yet ascended. Anyway, during that time, this 40 days with the disciples, Jesus was living with them. He's sitting around the campfire with them, eating with them, interacting with them. He's performing signs, giving them orders, and he's teaching them. And much of that we see in John 21. But John also says that most of what he said and did uh, has not been recorded. Luke records that Jesus was teaching them from the Old Testament teaching them everything related to the Messiah that had been fulfilled in him. He's also teaching them about the kingdom. And first you see that in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself and teaching them further about the kingdom. And a bit later, when he appears, the disciples, uh, recorded in verses 44 to 45, says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he doesn't just teach them from the Old Testament what had been prophesied uh, about him and what had been spoken about him that they now knew had in fact come to pass, but 
he also gives them uh, the commission to take the gospel uh, to the world. That's in verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that commission, the Great Commission, of course, is also included in Matthew and in Mark's account. Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. <clears throat> so first, Jesus instructs them and opens their minds uh, to understand how all of the Old Testament messianic uh, passages are pointing to him and are fulfilled in him. And now they can actually understand everything that has happened. They understand uh, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And he's also given them this commission to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim repentance and um, for the forgiveness of sin and faith in him. And then uh, he ends this instruction with verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, basically he's saying, now you understand the Old Testament, you, you understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament, my life, my death, my resurrection. Now you're equipped with your understanding of those scriptures. You clearly now know that I'm alive, and I've given you your commission, your marching orders, and what you're to do with that knowledge. But don't go anywhere. Don't get started just yet. Wait until you're empowered from on high. <clears throat> with the promise from the Father that I'll send. And that, of course, is the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he had promised uh, them, and it's recorded in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, and also in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So don't go away just yet. Wait until you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to come back to those verses a little bit later. So then shortly um, <clears throat> before the Feast of Pentecost, he leaves them in a spectacular and a really decisive way. <clears throat> now, I suppose that Jesus could have returned to heaven. He could have returned to the presence of of the Father in any number of ways. Um, he could have just said, okay, this is my last visit, see you when I return, and then just disappeared. Because he had done that on a number of other occasions. Uh, but that's not what happened. <clears throat> Luke describes how he was lifted up visibly and physically, and then a cloud surrounds him, and he's gone from their sight. Now, this was apparently such a staggering sight that um, 
they stood there for the longest time, speechless, gazing up uh, into the sky, into heaven, in the direction that Jesus had been taken away. <clears throat> and they finally snap out of it when these two men in white robes, who presumably were angels, uh, they say, men of Galilee, uh, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven, into heaven. So the ascension was not only the final disappearance, at least from the disciples, but it also looked forward to his eventual return, and there is that promise. And I don't know, but some of the disciples may have been thinking, uh, wow, that was amazing, the way Jesus just took off. Uh, but he's going to be coming back soon. That's just another temporary, albeit spectacular, disappearance. But, but Jesus wasn't coming back soon. In fact, he wasn't coming back for a long, long time. And the disciples needed to understand that. And now they needed to remember and obey the order that Jesus had given them, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. At the same time, they probably did need to be reassured that he would be returning, just not yet. Now, we may not think uh, much about the fact that Jesus was taken up into a cloud. In fact, we probably don't. We just read over that, don't think much about it. <clears throat> but we need to see this event through the lens uh, that the disciples were viewing it through. They were essentially... Uh, Old Testament believers, and they were well-versed in the history of God's presence and his working among his people. So for them, being taken up into this cloud had real significance. Throughout the Old Testament, a cloud was a symbol and actually a real visible manifestation of the veiled glory of God. When God descended on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he came in a cloud of glory, smoke, thunder, quaking, and trumpet blasts. God led his people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire at night and with a cloud by day. That's Exodus 13, 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And then when Moses met with God in the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud was at the entrance of the tent. When the ark uh, of the covenant was brought into the holy of holies in Solomon's temple, the same cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. And this may also have been what Isaiah saw and experienced in his vision of the heavenly throne where the Lord was seated and the house was filled with smoke in Isaiah 6, 4. <clears throat> and then when Jesus was transfigured, Peter, James, and John are overshadowed by <clears throat> a bright cloud from which God speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased to listen to him. And that's Matthew 17, 5. So yeah, when Jesus is taken up into this cloud, it was real and it signified 
the real presence of the glory of God. Jesus is going back into the presence of God, God the Father, the presence that he had left heaven for in order to descend to earth in the incarnation. He's going back into face-to-face communion with God the Father. He took on flesh in his incarnation, was resurrected in glorified human flesh, and now he returns to heaven to the presence of God, no longer a spirit, but a fully embodied glorified flesh and blood, God the Son. And as the angels assure the disciples, he will be returning in the same way, physically, bodily, in the same way he ascended, he will return. So Jesus returns to heaven because everything that Christ had come to earth to accomplish has been accomplished. There's nothing left for him to do that has not been done. His mission to do the Father's will is complete. Christ has conquered sin. He's conquered death, Satan, all the forces of darkness, and that was evident in his resurrection. And now this final stage of that conquest, that victory, is the ascension to his throne in heaven. The ascension is about the final victory and establishment of the kingship of Jesus. He went into battle against the forces of darkness, and he was victorious. He dealt with, he paid for sin, conquered the grave, he defeated the powers of darkness, and now he is mounting his throne. So, victory. Now, I I want you to think uh, just a little bit more deeply on this, and maybe use just a little bit of speculation as to what was happening in heaven. Jesus returns to heaven to take his seat in triumph on the heavenly throne. He's surrounded by this cloud of the glorious presence of God. And that's significant because if Christ had not ascended, how could we be sure that his work was done? How could we be sure that there were no more enemies to conquer? Certainly in the resurrection, but more assuredly in his ascension. How could we be sure that God no longer had any charges against us? How could we be sure that the victory was final and that Christ was or is actually reigning over all? But he did ascend because the victory is complete. All debts have been paid, and now he reigns. Jesus returns to heaven surrounded by the sights and sounds of heaven, which we someday will see as well. He's received with songs, songs of praise and worship by the angels, the archangels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the flaming ones, as well as all the other heavenly creatures, and they're all welcoming home their Lord, the King of glory. Now, I know we've experienced maybe high school homecoming, college homecoming, or some other you know, significant personal celebration, well, take that and magnify it by hundreds of thousands of times over. And again, try to imagine that scene. Jesus, he's surrounded by the host of heaven, surrounded by the angels of God. There is an explosion of joy and praise For the Lord, strong and mighty in battle, 
God the Son, joyous praise for the crucified and risen one. Heaven is filled with rejoicing and wonder that Christ has returned victorious over all the forces of darkness and evil. So the ascension is about Jesus returning to heaven in victory. But the ascension is not just about the victory that Christ achieved. The ascension is also a sign of his kingship. Christ is victorious. He ascends the throne in heaven. And Simon Peter uh, explains this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 24 through 31. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter's explaining here while quoting David's Psalm 16, 8 through 11, step by step, what is the, the basis and the purpose of the ascension? God is setting his own son on the Davidic and divine throne. And Psalm 24 is also <clears throat> a prophetic foreshadowing of the ascension of Christ the King. Verse 3 asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer to that is Jesus Christ is the one who ascends the hill of the Lord to approach the throne of heaven. And as he returns in triumph, the command is given in verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then a question is asked, who is the King of glory? And the answer is powerfully given in verse 8 and 9. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the King. No longer on a cross, no longer in a tomb, no longer on the earth, he sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of the Father. Now, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> speaks about the extent and the absolute uh, authority of Christ's kingship. After the ascension, he's writing, in, uh, or writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 23. <clears throat> says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He's seated. He's not standing like a servant. He's not kneeling like a slave. He's sitting at God's right hand as a son, as the son. And the right hand of God is a biblical expression for divine strength, for power, favor, and majesty. This is where Christ is seated, enthroned in equal sovereignty and power with God the Father. And then in John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God the Father answered that prayer by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. And verse 21 gives two facts in in Ephesians, that um, passage I just read. Verse 21 gives two facts about the authority of the enthroned Christ. Paul says his rule is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, first of all, his authority is universal. And the four terms, rule, authority, power, and dominion, most likely refer to uh, beings in the spiritual realm because Paul later refers to these in Ephesians 6.12, Satan and his his evil minions. Uh, But the key term there is all, okay? God seated Christ far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name named. So that pretty much covers not only all spiritual beings as well as uh, earthly, physical rulers and authorities. And then, just in case Paul failed to mention some power or authority, he says, if you can name it, okay, Jesus has authority over it, far above, you know, all, any name that's named. Now, that alone should be a great comfort to believers. We don't have to fear, we can't be bound by, we can't be defeated by Satan and his evil forces or any other earthly power or authority. Christ is above all power and authority. He reigns and rules over them. They can only do what he allows or directly ordains. You see that in Job. And in the life of the believer, we know from Romans 8.28 and plenty of other passages that everything that he ordains in the life of a believer is for our good and his glory. So his, his rule is universal. Second, the authority and rule of Christ is never-ending. Verse 21 says that the authority of Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, the authority of Christ is universal and it is never-ending. He rules all things at all times. Wherever you are, And whenever it may be, Christ is ruling there and then. 
Doesn't matter what age or era, doesn't matter what time period or season, the sovereign rule and authority of Christ is unchanging and never-ending. Oh, Isaac Watts wrote, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. His rule is never ending. And that's because he was raised and ascended and God seated him at his right hand. And then Paul says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. Now, at first that might seem like it's just restating verse 20, but that's not actually the case. This is expanding his rule beyond just rulers and powers and authorities to include everything in creation. God has placed everything in creation under the feet of Christ. Everything in creation from the bottom of the earth's oceans to every creature that walks, crawls, or flies, every plant or animal, every human being on the face of the earth and out into the furthest reaches of the universe. Everything is under the feet, under the authority of Christ. Psalm 2, 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ is ruling and reigning over every single thing in creation. And Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean that everybody will be saved, but it does mean that everyone will submit to the lordship of Christ, whether in heaven or hell. <clears throat> Christ's authority is universal. It is never-ending, and it is exhaustive. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his authority. Nothing is outside of his lordship, and that is because he is the ascended Christ. And then in verse 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The ascended Christ is the head of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church belongs to Christ, and he's building it. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of his church, the head of all things to the church. And that is a profound statement of the intimate union, the intimate connection between the resurrected, ascended, enthroned Christ 
and his redeemed people, believers, the church. I know you've heard people say that they love Jesus. I know I've heard this. Um, they love Jesus, but they don't want anything to do with the church. They've, they've been hurt by the church, or there are just too many hypocrites in the church. But you can't embrace Christ and reject the church. Christ is the head. The church is his body. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. Christ is the shepherd. The church is his sheep. And Ephesians 3.21 says, To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Paul is saying that the church is essential to the glory of God. So you can't have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church at the same time. It's, it's impossible. No matter how you may have been hurt by someone in the church, God has put all things under the feet of the ascended and enthroned Christ and given him as head over all things to the church. <clears throat> I was talking to Colin yesterday at the men's breakfast, and we were talking about this issue, and he made the point, people who are so offended by the church and leave the church because someone hurt them in the church, they weren't in church for Jesus. They were in church for the society. They were in church for fellowship or for the encouragement or support that they got from other people, but they weren't there for Christ, the head. The ascended and enthroned Christ has universal, never-ending, exhaustive authority, and he is head of his church. And in addition to exercising his authority, ruling and reigning over all and everything from his heavenly throne. He's also now operating <clears throat> in the role of our high priest and interceding for us. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So during his earthly ministry, Christ served as our high priest by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins once for all. And now ascended and enthroned in heaven, he continues this work as high priest by interceding for us before the Father without ceasing. And that should be a tremendous comfort to all of us who are believers. We have a high priest at the right hand of God who is always interceding on our behalf. He is always praying for us. Even when we fail to pray, when we feel overwhelmed, when we are fearful, when we are frozen with fear and can't pray, even when we are without hope, you must know that Christ is praying for you. He is lifting you up before the Father. And because he's God the Son, he's holy, he's without sin, so his prayers will never be, they can never be hindered. And he always knows what's best for us, and he always prays what's best for us, 
and his prayers are always effective because they are always in accordance with the Father's will. So Christ's ascension is significant. Significant because after his ascension, in his role as intercessor, he asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit in fullness to indwell and empower his people. And that was fulfilling his promise to the disciples in the upper room, to send another comforter, to always be with him. Again, I'm going to read it again, John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And also in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So during Christ's earthly ministry, he was limited to one location at a time. But now, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ is working throughout the world in everyone all the time, all believers all the time. And, of course, Jesus promises just before his ascension in Acts 1.8 that the Holy Spirit will empower his disciples to take the gospel to the world. And then he also uh, gives spiritual gifts to believers through the Holy Spirit after his ascension. That's Ephesians 4.8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, finally, with the ascension, we are reassured that he will return again. Acts 1.11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And not only will he return, but Jesus promised that he will take his people home to be with him forever when he returns. John 14, 1 through 4, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So, yeah. The ascension is hugely significant. It means Jesus is victorious. He's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling over everything as the king of glory. He's the head of the church, and he's building his church. He intercedes for us as our high priest. He sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower and give gifts and be with us forever. He's preparing a place for us, and he's coming again. He's coming again for us to take us home, to be with him forever. So the ascension is significant. Now, I I do want to leave you with one last thing to think about. 
This is from Kevin DeYoung's book on the Heidelberg Catechism that we went through a year or so ago. <clears throat> he says, most staggering of all, the ascension means that God has granted all rule, all power, authority, and dominion to a man. Jesus Christ is exercising the dominion that man was made to have from the very beginning in Genesis 1.28. Because of Christ's ascension, we know that the incarnation continues. Christ's humanity lives on in heaven. The Spirit lives in our hearts, and a fleshy, divine human being rules the universe. One thing I didn't include in here is uh, another thing that the ascension uh, assures us of is that we too will be resurrected physically, bodily. We will dwell with the Lord in heaven, new heaven and new earth, in physical bodies. And that is a glorious thing to look forward to. Yeah. So that's it on the ascension. Next week, go into the return uh, even more. So any questions this morning? Yes, ma'am. So other than what is recorded in Scripture, there's been some speculation. So one, um, <clears throat> um, Ferguson uh, speculates about what was going on there. And he speculates that <clears throat> it's possible that Jesus actually was ascending and returning back and forth to heaven multiple times during that 40 days. And it may have been what he was referring to there with Mary. And pure speculation, but simply because there would be times when he was with the disciples, with people, and he would just disappear. And there's no record as to where he was during those times of disappearing. So it's pure speculation. But I mean, that's the only thing that I read in regards to that. Could be that too. Um, <laughs> doesn't say. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. not recorded. There's, yeah, there's no record of that. <clears throat> I'm assuming that he spent that, that 40 days with his, with his people, with his disciples, not just the, the 11, but, you know, many disciples that he had. Yeah. 
yeah, probably, but no record. Yeah. No record. Yeah. So I can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Get into heresy. Yeah. is referencing the gospel. Well, I don't know. Could be. I'd have to look. I'd have to research. I don't know offhand. Yeah. Any other questions I can't answer? Travis. <laughs> say say what? I think that was just a natural assumption. I certainly no expectation. Well, he's leaving. He'll be back in a couple thousand years or more. You know? And I think because of the things that have been said and taught, that they're, they've made some you know, assumptions that were not, you know, it would have been natural assumptions. But just I don't think there was any expectation that he would be gone this long. Okay, you're dismissed.